Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. The word of the Lord. Be to God. The, before the, you may be seated, before the kids go down for Children's Church today, um, I need, uh, let's see, William, um, Jaden, and Otis. Let's see, William. Right, William. That's you. There's two Williams. Uh, uh, Otis, there's one Otis, uh, and one Jaden. Matt in the 1980s, there was like 17 of us. Uh, one of the things that we, you guys can all t- turn and face them. These are your people. Um, you did not choose them. God chose them. Um, one of the things we try to, are starting to ha- try to develop here at Defiance Church is sort of this way of bringing children up in the faith. And it takes various many forms. But the, one of the prayer books I, I use every Saturday night, the reading is from Deuteronomy 6, and it talks about the stories, and I don't know what translation it's using, but it says, drill them into your children. Drill these stories into your children. And so at third grade, all of them are in third grade, or you're a little head, right? Cause, but you, there's a different thing with that. But anyways, a third or fourth grade, around this time, um, we like to get each of the kids a Bible. So this is Otis. Uh, this is Jaden, and this is William. Their parents and them work together to choose it. That's why they all have different ones. Um, but this is good for us to see. The next step sort of in this journey after this is they're blessed as babies. That's sort of the idea. S- brought into the story and to the loving church. Given a story so that they can have the stories drilled into them. Blessings on that. Um, and then as they move out of Sunday school into the service to then sort of discern baptism. That's sort of the pattern we're going to be going with. But uh, you guys are blessed to go downstairs with the other kids for Sunday school today um, and to learn. And, and Miss Emily today is drilling the story into the children. So um, go for it, Emily. She's a very gentle. She's more create an atmosphere in which the story can take root and, and, and reach the soil of the ground.
Build houses and plant gardens is what the exiles are instructed to do in the book of Jeremiah. Those whom God has brought away from their holy land and their place of worship are instructed in that time not to, um, to throw off their, their imperial rulers or to look for something else, but to settle in, to build houses and to plant gardens. This sermon series is connected to a book um, that we have copies of back uh, on the table back there called Domestic Monastery. Um, and part of the theme of this is sort of like, how do we build houses and places that are stronger than the culture that surrounds us, that are able to withhold in that? Sorry, this image um, is, is one we used when we're going through the book of Jonah. And it's this idea of that Jonah was swallowed into the belly of the whale. And at the time of the book of Jonah, Israel was in its own exiled, swallowed in its own whale. So the question of the book of Jonah is, is how do we handle God's grace towards those whom we are in exile, who are our rulers? But the question of the book of Jeremiah, which it's connected to, is then if God is loving towards those who might even be your captors, what is the goal for you to survive exile? Build houses and plant gardens. And so that book, there's a discussion on it on Wednesday. There'll be lots of food and fun and some family stuff. There's a sign-up sheet also on that by the door. Um, so sign up so we have an idea of who's going to be here. But that should be a time of sort of taking this theme in of what does it mean for us to sort of have our houses be in this way. The, the author says of, of the monastery, what is a monastery? A monastery is not so much a place set apart for monks and nuns as it is a place set apart, period. So Israel, as it finds itself in exile, so too as the church. And the church, because we don't have permanence the same way that Israel does, always sorts of exists in an exile with cultures and things that surround it that attempt to pull it away from what God has called it into. It sounds like today, but it also sounds like every day for the church. We are often called into these places in which we are trying to be set apart for something. And Israel would have a notion of, of what it means to be set apart because it's where and often, if you've been around the church like three Sundays, you'll often hear preachers say, holy means set apart. Holy means set apart. Um, which is good, and then it's like set apart for what and why and, and why this. Um, uh, as preachers, we like to just, it means set apart. Don't ask questions. Um, uh, but, um, but it's a place set apart, period. And it's a place in which we might be able to find God and grow there. I've told this story twice already, but I think it's such a great story about when Bonhoeffer uh, is in Nazi Germany and he started a seminary for young people to train. And he realizes that as the Nazis rule Germany, they need a confessing church, a stronger church, a church that is not captivated to those demands. They have two years before it's taken apart. This is preserved in the book Life Together, if you've ever read it. Um, that's the story of this experiment that Bonhoeffer does. But what happens is, and Bonhoeffer comes from the upper middle class, and so it wasn't really a good idea for him to become a pastor. Um, they kind of were like, why would you do this? This seems like an odd life choice. Um, and then he was a pastor running this seminary that was opposed to sort of the Nazi party, the ruling group, uh, which also doesn't seem like a wise choice. And then on top of that, they were very serious about their faith. 
in, in Germany, there was a state church. So everybody was a member of the Lutheran church to some degree. So to be very serious about your faith was a weird thing because it set you apart, to be set apart from everyone else. And so the family sends one of Bonhoeffer's friends down to tell him, is this really that necessary? Could you back it up a bit? It seems like you guys are really into this. This is not what we sort of see for you. So him and Bonhoeffer go out on a boat, and Bonhoeffer takes him to the place where the uh, Nazi soldiers are training together, and there's an airfield and such that. And what he says to his friend is, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. This has to be stronger than that. So too, I think it is for the church in our time, in all times, but certainly more today, to ask the question is, how can this be stronger than that? You have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere. So part of it is finding ourselves set apart. This is the, the third sermon in the sermon series. In the first one, we talked about what does it mean to be a creative minority in the world. That's a phrase from a rabbi. Uh, that, that Israel survived by being a creative minority in the world? What does it mean to build houses in the belly of the beast? Because God has sent you there on purpose. It's sort of what that Jeremiah reading leads to, is that you are not in the belly of the beast by accident. And to long for other times and places where it is easier is perhaps an offense to God. We are called to be where we are. We're called to build houses and to plant gardens here and to seek the peace of the place in which God has brought us. The second Sunday, I focused on order sort of as this way in which we um, find ourselves drawn into God's order in this way that we then are able, enabled to um, place our own lives in order. The quote for last Sunday on the back of the bulletin was from Eric Vogelin, which said that no one is required to participate in the spiritual crisis of their society. Actually, they're, they're, they should live their lives in order. So too it is for the church to find itself in order. And we looked at, at God's love of order from the tabernacle to creation to the wilderness to medieval cathedrals, images of all that. And then we ended with a made bed that for us in our domestic monasteries or as a church, it's for us to find the small places to put in order, to put one or two things back together that belong together, to not put everything, uh, everything back together, but to live in that small way of putting the minor things back together. And so the book that I, I took, that image from uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish uh, Harrison, um, she says that she finds herself on that bed after it's been made in the morning, sitting there in her little place of order. And what does she do? She opens herself up to prayer. She says the Lord's Prayer. She reads the psalm. She'll use her prayer book, um, O Lord, open my mouth uh, to praise you. She'll sit in that spot for whatever time she has, making a little order in the world to then to begin to, to sort of bring order out of that space, to sort of invite God into that place. And so that is um, 
where we find ourselves today is sort of the starting with prayer. For those of you who get the email, I just want to revisit one thing from that, which is this week um, there was an article from Ephraim Radner, an old article, about um, how Jews survived exile. See, what Jeremiah doesn't tell us is how you might build houses and plant gardens where your faith continues and flourishes. This is a challenge for the church, and it's a challenge for Jews as well. And and I mentioned it last week. It's a little bit easier, per se, for um, several other religions, most notably Judaism and uh, Islam off the top of my head, is because they have clothes, and they have diet, and they have mandated rituals to sort of make them distinct. The church is called to be different in the same way that Islam or, say, Judaism is called to be different in the world, yet we don't have no bacon for me. I have to go leave to pray, or Saturdays are not a day I can come and play sports. We lack the, the, the requirements, um, and there's reason for that, but, but it makes the challenge of, then what does it mean to be distinct? How much more is the challenge for the church? Because we can't just say, God's forbidden these meats, therefore we're set apart. Sometimes I think that would be easier for us. Um, We're called to be set apart in our love for God and our love for neighbor. Called to be set apart in the ways in which we worship and love one another. Called to be set apart in the way in which the church bestows dignity on all people. The way the church lives its life in order, that was one of the things that spoke in the ancient world. One of the ways in which it invited the oppressed in, that was one of the ways in which it found itself distinct. Um, It's piety, which we don't talk about much today, but it's piety that that they did not share their wives, um, that they had a a strict sort of regimen of sexuality, and um, that too was part of the early church's distinctness. Interestingly enough, while abortion wasn't a challenge in the early church, infanticide was, leaving your children out to um, die from the elements, and the church had a habit of collecting those children though they were not their own. A robust piety. The church is called to have that type of weight in the world. But Radner came up with three ways in which Israel might have been able to learn that the church could learn. First, he says, families were conceived, gathered, and raised through the prioritized efforts of adults to become uh, just this, mothers and fathers and religious educative love to children. This is something that Western Christians, it must be said, have largely abandoned as a divine goal. Drill these stories into your children. Talk about them when you get up and talk about them before you go to bed is what Deuteronomy instructions. These stories, the Bibles that I gave the children, and if you don't have a Bible and you're an adult here, we would love to give you one as well, are meant to be near to us. The stories shape us in a way that we can be robust in the world. And so to these people conceived of their task as bringing their children into the narrative universe of this. We were once slaves. is something they can conceptually grasp, being told it so often. My father Abraham was a wandering one without a home, were things that they ritually enacted so that it became clear to them that they were different in the world. The second, Radner says, is the second uh, ordered their individual and communal life to learning. 
especially to scriptural study, immersion in the tradition of elders, and the discipline of religiously ordered thought. It was, it was funny, at the Bema discussion this week with Rachel and Zane, um, the idea was that you would study the tradition, you would study the text, then you would study what was said about the text, and then maybe when you were 80 or 90, you would have something interesting to say about the text. The average North American Bible study begins with, you just got here, what do you think of the mysteries surrounding this ancient text? Um, which is uh, funny, and it, I think there, there's a proper adjustment there, but you can see how we've, you know, uh, I spent three years learning this stuff, but I'll meet people on the street who'll say, I think you're wrong about this, and I spent 10 seconds thinking about it before, um, and it's like, that's fair, that's fine. Um, have you conceived that maybe there were people thinking about this for a long, long time? Um, this is an old joke. If you remember Richard Dawkins in The New Atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins is a brilliant uh, scientist. He knows a lot about, I think, birds in particular. And I think it was David Bentley Hart who said, reading Richard Dawkins on religion is like reading me on birds if I had only read Audubon's Guide to Birds. Um, uh, Hart had this way of, of just sort of blowing off all of Christianity with no consideration of what's there. Um, so Audubon's Guide to Birds is just largely pictures and examples of where birds might inhabit, which would make you very unknowledgeable about birds. Um, so anyways, rabbinic study and teaching, as we know, went far beyond uh, the insipid superficiality of most modern Christian claims to adult study, but took in the breath of the past and the ladder of heavenly ascent through contemplation. It's a wonderful phrase to think of, the ladder of heavenly ascent through contemplation. We break open the scriptures for contemplation, for adoration. We come to worship for that. The last one, which is worship. And third, the goal was worship, uh, godly worship weekly as a family, Shabbats, the center of prayer and community daily for adults. They understood that the words and thoughts, songs and prayers served as the ordered praise of God whose personal care had placed the Jew in just the place that constituted diaspora um, exile. God's personal care had placed them in exile as grace for all its descenderedness. It is sometimes, it's sometimes incoherent diversity and it's disconnected communal strategies. They learned to worship in the midst of this. So too, I think it is for us, that's part of the challenge of this sermon series, is to again find how our families, households, um, our people were connected with those near to us are brought in to um, caring and bringing up of the narratable universe. Second, that we would find ourselves enriched in study as contemplation, as bringing ourselves up. And third, that we would come together for worship, that worship would be strong as well. He ends with the Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv once quoted Psalm 118.17, I shall not die but live as the motto for its exhibit on the cultural, uh, culture of historically scattered Jewish communities. Exile, diaspora, existence is ultimately life-giving for it is founded on the deepest kind of hope. Where the church is placed today and we started the sermon series with uh, Jesus who builds his church and Jesus who says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
For the church in our time and place, we too, connected to Israel, can say, I shall not die, but live. Because we are brought in and enabled to have new practices as God placed us here purposely and so that we might find life-giving and that we might find it to be the deepest kind of hope. This is, I think, um, names well. In in the article, if you had a chance to read it, um, or if you're not on the email, I can get you on the email if you just give me your email. um, Or you can sign up on the website. But... um, he says, that did this, would this cause the church to grow? He says, that, that's kind of the wrong question because it's what we're called into. It's what we're called to do and be. It is the nature of Christianity on mission that it might be this way, that it's called to be this way. But today, the, the topic um, of study is that if, after we sort of decide who we are in the world, that we are this thing that is distinct, called to be set apart, um, that we have something higher that calls us. I've often said with order that you could use peace or beauty in that phrase, that word that sort of guides us in that. Um, there are other words too. Um, but there's some sort of um, something we're drawn up into in contemplation, something beyond us. Um, the beauty that, that we would use if we used beauty wouldn't be beauty that's within ourselves, but that would be the beauty of God in his temple. If we were to use peace, it would be the peace that comes from God, that is given by God, and that this world sort of seeks to overthrow. When we get to order, then it, the opposite is disorder, um, that, that, that because of the way that humanity chose and, and set its path, we live disordered lives. And so one of my favorite quotes on the back of the bulletin day, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Prayer often seems um, easy, um, or it can seem cheap, or it can seem blown out. But, but I think what Bart is naming here for us is that to truly to gather and to clasp hands in prayer, and, and I almost think like truly is the wrong phrase because it thinks like, am I doing it truly? It's like if you're doing it, God considers you doing it truly. But like if we truly think of ourselves what we're doing when we're praying, even the cheap or distant kind, we're beginning an uprising against the disorder of the world because what God can do in us do in what's near to us, and do in the world. Prayer is this place where we are sort of gathered into that place of adoration and contemplation in which we can begin to, to see both God's order but see also God's way of touching and teaching and reaching us and then setting us in the world in different ways. The hard part about prayer is, uh, it was, Kelly thought this was funny, um, so it's probably, she might have been sympathy laughing now, now that I'm rethinking this. Um, but anyways, I, I said at, at the Beeman discussion this week, I said, somebody said uh, that, that talking about prayer is like trying to give instruction on kissing. It's much more fun to do it than it is to get instruction on doing it. And then I said, and that someone was me, because Kelly was like, yeah, I didn't think Rachel and Zane would say that. And I was like, well, it's hard, because I don't want to be the one who says that quote, because it's just awkward. Um, 
Um, but that's, I think, part of the challenge of prayer is praying, being involved in prayer, sitting together, is what it's supposed to be. To take prayer and to pull apart it to parts and then to analyze it is to, is to lose its heat. Actually, C.S. Lewis talks about this in relationship to communion. He says, the idea that we need to define what communion is is like taking a coal from the fire and then as it gets away from the fire, analyzing it to see what it is. But what happens is it loses its heat the more you take it away from the fire. So too it is with prayer. As we remove it from the act of praying, of praying in our lives, of being a person of prayer, so too what happens to us is it loses its heat in the world. It's no longer that fire that burns within us, fire that burns outside of us, fire that is attempting to ignite in us. Calvin, when he is converted, he says his heart is strangely warmed. Um, this fire that, that is attempting to reach us, um, we take it apart and it loses its power. So now I move to taking it apart. <laughs> um, that's to say that as we take it apart, it loses something of what it is. Um, and what's the, what's the saying? Those who can't do teach. Um, uh, I often feel when we get to like prayer, um, sometimes pastors are stuck in that position of those who can't teach. Um, we like to study. There's a, a Benedictine, not Dominican monks. They say they don't pray, they preach. Um, their preaching, their praying is their preaching. And I think pastors, particularly Protestant ones, are drawn into that temptation as well of how do I say something constructive and good and that, and how do I analyze this, and how do I make the pieces whole rather than praying, rather than being a person of prayer. So to that challenge stands for me as well. Now the book we're, we're reading is by Ronald Rollheiser, and he has this way of, of sort of thinking about prayer in that book um, and in another book. Um, uh, but there's a funny quote from him. He says, um, what do we have left in the world if you were to say, I want to escape all these voices that are bombarding me? He, every type of spiritual practice comes to us, traditional and new. Go to a prayer meeting become involved in social justice group, attend a Bible study, become a feminist, join a men's group, sign up for promise keepers, practice this kind of prayer, try that kind of meditation, face your addictions through a 12-step program, your highest potential through these steps, learn what other religions can offer you, do the Enneagram, uh, arrange an encounter, recover the fire and belly, get sync with the wolf inside of you, that one made me laugh, do an Ignatian retreat, be born again, give your life to Jesus, be more in touch with nature. We hear many spiritual voices today. That's just one bookstore trip of all the noise that we can sort of be surrounded in. But what Rollheiser does in, in this book, a uh, separate one from the one we're reading, he says there are four things that if we look at the scriptures and the tradition that make a healthy spiritual life. Private prayer and private morality. Care for neighbor and concern for those near to you. Mellowness of heart. That's why that psalm we started with this morning, mellowness of heart. 
I don't consider things too haughty for me. But I rest in God. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount, too, this mellowness of heart, what Jamie read for us. We'll get to that in a sec. And then community as constructive element of that spiritual life. Community as a constructive element of that spiritual life. What he does in the rest of the chapter, I won't walk through it, is, is points to the, the errors of doing one or the other. I have robust private prayer, but no concern for my neighbor. I have robust private prayer, but I'm not a part of a spiritual community in which that is inhabited together. I have mellowness of heart, but no morality. It's probably an easy one to balance of all the ones, um, uh, because you'd just be completely disaffected, um, which is an option for us in the modern world, oddly. Um, but he has, he sort of names those four, um, private prayer, private morality, care for neighbor, um, mellowness of heart, and community as this element. Um, and that, that sort of sets us up for prayer in this way. The one thing I want to say about Domestic Monastery before we sort of walk into prayer real fast um, is that the, the book begins with an example of a woman asking him as he gave a talk that the monastic life says that unless you spend an hour in quiet prayer, you won't advance in the spiritual life. And a woman comes up to him afterwards and says, I have little kids. How the heck am I supposed to spend an hour in silent prayer? Um, and he responds to her that, that being available in that type of way is its own form of prayer. Part of it is because you quickly learn that your time is not your own time. There's always somebody reaching out and asking for something. In my house, it's mom, 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 mom. Um, sometimes it's dad, um, but more often the first cry is for mom. Don't teach my kids otherwise. Um, uh, if, you've, if you're reading the book, Kelly's more holy than I am, and I'll take that compromise. Um, uh, but you learn time is not your own, and it, he says you get in touch with the mellowness of people. Now that's parenting, but, I, but what I took from the book as I read that is that living in the daily demands of life is instructive for us. One of the sermons I talked that I really don't like the, the sacred and secular divide. There is religion, there is church, and there is my lived life in my workplace. My lived life with my family, the challenges of caring for a parent who's sick or ill. All of those things are the schools in which God wants to train us in holiness. So as a pastor, I often say, as the pastor of this church, I often say that Defiance Church does not want to be in competition for your time. That's why we don't have a lot of programs or things that I ask you to be at here, because your time is already um, a place in which you can live in which God has called you. You have neighbors. You have workplaces. You have families. And what I fear is sometimes because I'm so focused on what the church can be in supporting you in that, I don't say enough that God's work can be active there for you. That what we do here in sort of the cycled way, this is um, uh, one way that Eugene Peterson sort of graphs it, is the Lord's Day in worship with your community, going out daily in prayer after that. So what we do here then goes with you. 
recollected prayers throughout the day, and then coming back to Lord's Day with your community. The other parts along the way are meant to be holy as well, that God has called you into those spaces. So if you ever hear me thinking, you know, the church focuses on these things and you focus on that, it's not the way that I'm conceiving of it. The church is the time in which we are gathered, in which we hear, in which we are formed, in which we are grafted, so that we too are sent out to be those people. And we co-sent out as members of something else. That, I think, is one of the great challenges, is that we're members of this place together. We go out with the prayers of the people gathered here. We go out with the prayers of people with us. Um, so that, I think, is, is one of the things that is a challenge um, that I, I want to be clear about. Uh, I want to talk about prayer in the boring sense of taking it away from the fire because that's what I get paid to do. Here I am. Um, uh, clasp your hands in prayer against the disorder of the world. Here's four steps that makes up a healthy prayer life. Um, whenever anybody says X number of steps that make up something, I just quit. Um, uh, my friend Andrew recently wrote a book about the desert fathers and mothers, and he gave sort of this idea of what it takes to practice prayer. And I realized even I, uh, as somebody who does this professionally, which is such a terrible thing to say, but um, uh, it was nice to hear the simple steps that can make up a prayer life of sitting there in this way. The first one, which I didn't think about enough, is space. This is Jesus and what Jamie read for us today. Go to your room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So often, I think, everywhere is holy, everywhere can be prayer, this, that, and the other, which is true. But to set aside a space to pray. In the screw tape letters, one of the devils is writing to another devil about making sure that he thinks he's so holy all the time because then he'll never dive into the real work of prayer. I can pray while I'm out in nature. It quickly becomes not praying at all. In the words of one devil to the other devil, it just becomes superficial in nature, and that keeps him from the real fire. The second thing it says in that is, is that keep him think that, that his posture doesn't matter. It's what the one devil says to the other devil. Make him think that he, where he, if, whether he's kneeling or standing or riding his bike, it's all the same. And the more we can get the creatures, which is what he calls humanity, to forget the bodies, the better off we are. To set a space for prayer. Now this says, go to your room. Um, in the King James, I think it says, go to your closet. And in the ancient Near East, it's likely that Jesus really meant the one closet in your one bedroom or one room house. This is not uh, a beautiful, uh, ornate space. It is go to one space, set apart, and set that place for prayer. So the first thing is have space for it. Have a place. And this can be quite easy. The second is have a time. This is often said of Jesus, not eerie, um, very early in the morning, uh, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, for some people, early in the morning is the best time. Um, I think early in the morning or in the morning provides this time of sort of being able to go into our day with prayer already 
um, bathed in it, that we, we sort of start and center ourselves. Um, part of the bigger challenge for me, uh, and I, like, I always feel bad when I say this because nobody ever says, like, oh, I struggle with that too, so maybe I should stop saying it, was that, like, the first thing most of us do in the morning, or at least I do in the morning, I try not to throw you guys under the bus with me, is I reach for my snar- smartphone instead of scriptures or prayer. My morning starts not with attention to what God might be calling me into, but with a quick notification swipe and then some doom scrolling and then uh, ESPN about sports I don't care about and then uh, coffee and then prayer. Um, But to start our days resisting that technological urge, even just to read one psalm, to steady yourself and say the Lord's Prayer, that psalm we read this morning, 131, short and memorizable. Um, to gather yourself in that, that time. Um, time in the church has, has often been a.m. and p.m. prayer. Those are the most sort of regular ones. There's, there's morning prayer, meal prayer, and evening prayer. Um, and then there's the Benedictines who pray six times a day together. Um, so, And there's all sorts of prayer books I love. Um, prayer books that sort of have these different structures in them. I think I brought one up. This is actually not a prayer book, but one that has AM and pre-AM prayer in it. If you'd like a copy of this, um, it's come the Book of Common Prayer. You can order them in bulk. You can look at this one. They come in different sizes, so if you're like, oh, the font looks small, um, uh, (laughs) we can order different sizes too. But this one sets just a simple rhythm for morning prayer and evening prayer with some sample prayers around it. Um, to have a time of confession and all these other things. Um, But Jesus is one, too, who in the morning takes time for prayer, who goes out. The second thing, uh, or the third thing he says is, when you enter prayer, take some time for stillness. Not all of our life needs to be activity and go, go, go. Be still and know that I am God takes some time for stillness. He then advocates some time of reading scripture. St. Augustine uh, says, um, melt in its presence um, to have some time of reading scripture. There's the daily office, there's the Bible in a year. The hard part about these things is I try not to be overly instructive in them, not because I don't want to be of help, (laughs) but because it's all tailored uh, it's all what you can manage. There's a great phrase is, pray as you can, not as you can't. So if I say, hey, get up and read uh, the four readings from the daily office and do the Book of Common Prayer reading and do it three times a day, and you're like, not going to happen, um, I've overlaid too much in the, in, on it. Or if I say, don't do anything, just think of yourself as holy, then I've perhaps not given you anything to strive for and, and maybe undercut the whole process itself. So I try not to be overly instructive in these things, um, but if you'd like more instruction or ideas, I can certainly help with that. Um, But to have some time in Scripture, to have some intercession, um, this is where we offer things that we're concerned about ourselves, but we offer up other people. I think um, it's Bonhoeffer who says, intercession is where we bring our friends, our family, our neighbor, and our church members before the face of God. We bring those whom we love to God in intercessory prayer. And then we wait and listen. We wait and try to hear. There is 
my seminary professor who taught the prayer class, which again was as boring as you can imagine because we talked about prayer more than we prayed, um, was that she said, um, she's not a charismatic, um, but she said 90% of prayer is listening. 90% of prayer is listening. I do not feel that way, nor is my prayer life that such, but I think there needs to be some listening in our prayers. There needs to be some waiting. There needs to be some silence in which God might come to us. So we wait and we listen and close prayer and say amen. And then we go into our daily life or whenever you might practice this in the evening. Um, Tertullian, when he talked about praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, he talked about one in anticipation of the day, one in the middle of the day as sort of um, a reminder, and then the one in the evening as sort of a collection of the day um, to sort of have the Lord's Prayer be there. Um, Trying to think of where, this is the hard part about prayer is where do you end other than praying and amen. Um, intercessory begins, uh, brings others before I'm just uh, sorry, pray with the amount of time you have. Prayer, uh, this was in a book that Kelly was reading this week called Habits of the Household. Prayer operates outside of our time and physics. Um, so any little bit you have is capable of doing so much. Um, don't think I have too little. Because prayer, because it is something that deals with the divine, is not limited into like time constraints. Short can work very well. Um, God can work with what we, we have. Um, my, my particularly favorite is, is praying the Psalms. Um, this, this field guide has a way to pray them all in a month, uh, morning and evening. Um, sorry, so we should probably just end in prayer. There's one last quote, though, from Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, this is him speaking about the Lord's Prayer, which I think calls us into a lot of the four that Rollheiser was talking about. Oh, one other thing. Do not count on your love to sustain your marriage. Count on your marriage to sustain your love. That's Bonhoeffer in the book we're reading, Domestic Monastery. Do not count on your love to sustain your marriage. Count on your marriage to sustain your love. This he applies to prayer. Do not count on your desire to pray to sustain your prayer life. Count on your prayers to sustain your prayer life. He says one of the things that anybody who's spent time in a monastic space knows is that most of prayer is showing up. Most of marriage is showing up. When Bonhoeffer's giving that advice, we're tempted to think it's the fire within me, it's my love that's going to sustain this day, not the regular patterns and rhythms and forms that feed me. So this, I think, is our challenge. How do we then make this a part of our lives in such a way that it's sustaining in and of itself because it's not always grand. And when the grand things happen in prayer, it's not always foreseeable. Um, you know, sometimes you come and you're like, today is the day I need a word. Then there are days when you're like, I've got to go. And you get reset in a way. And the scriptures through your prayer brings about something else. So we'll close with Gregory of Nyssa though. Let us remember that the life in which we ought to be interested in is daily. We can, each of us, 
only called the present time of our Lord, tells us to pray for today. And so he prevents us from tormenting ourselves about tomorrow. It is as if God were to say to us, it is I who gives you this day and will also give you what you need for this day. It is I who makes the sun to rise. It is I who scatters the darkness of right and reveals to you the rays of the sun. We are called into daily prayer and daily lives, not to be someplace else, but to be in our days. And so we pray. God, you have called us to be a people who pray, a people who open ourselves up to that which is beyond us, a people who seek your face when the foundations are being destroyed in the words of the psalm. Because there we are renewed in our exile. It is there where we are empowered and gifted and trained and enabled and taught for this to be stronger than that in the world. To be a people who know that time is your time that you've called us in today with our families and friends and coworkers and relations, not by accident. So we pray that we may be attentive to you as we go forth in our lives and in our days. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the king